0: Welcome to episode five, season two of What They Don't Tell You About. I am so excited for today's guest. One of the main reasons for starting my podcast in the first place came after listening to One on the Brain and Sleep. Since then, I've honestly been obsessed with everything sleep. I think my friends would back me up as I bore them on the reg about it. Listening and learning about sleep has really transformed my life. I know it sounds cliche, but it really has. Today, I have Guy Lejzina joining me. He is a consultant neurologist and is a clinical lead for the Guy's Hospital Sleep Disorder Centre, one of the largest sleep centres in Europe. He is also an author writing the book, The Nocturnal Brain. We talk sleep debt, naps, alcohol and so much more. Again, like many of the podcasts this series, it has been recorded over the internet, so please bear with any sound issues. I will be taking a two-week hiatus of the podcast next week, so I'll see you guys in a bit. Enjoy. Hi guys and welcome back to the podcast. So I am so excited for this guest today. As you all know and a lot of my friends know I am obsessed with sleep and we've got Guy Les- Lesch-Sinner. Have I said that right?
1: You have, yeah, just about.
0: Um, he is a consultant neurologist and sleep physician and author of The Nocturnal Brain and The Secret World of Sleep. Hello.
1: Hi Grace. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Kind of uh, enjoying the lockdown.
0: I know, I know. I'm enjoying enjoying it when the weather's nice. <laughs> um, so I wanted to ask the first question, how did you get into the field of sleep and specialising in sleep disorders?
1: So my, my background is uh, neurology. I actually trained in general neurology and epilepsy. Um, but um, despite the fact that as doctors, we historically have been taught very little about sleep uh, as part of my degree, I opted to do an extra subject. And one of those areas that we studied was sleep. And it was really at that point that it suddenly occurred to me that sleep was not purely about just waking up feeling a bit less tired than you felt when you went to bed, but that actually sleep had multiple important functions, both for the brain and the body. And it was really from there that I developed a a more and more interest in in the world of sleep and what's happening to our brains in particular but all of us uh, over the course of this eight hour period uh, that we perceive to be empty space which of course it's not.
0: and so I'm going to go in with the first myth and I think a lot of people have this and I actually believe this for a really long time I would get up at 5am after having five hours of sleep because I think as humans we are programmed to say you know you're getting up early means you're achieving but i felt awful i honestly couldn't function i'd go to the gym i'd feel terrible but i'd say to myself you know what you got five hours last night you're gonna get 10 the next night so that's fine you're making up for lost time it can you pay back sleep debt
1: well you can pay back back sleep debt to some extent so if you are uh sleep deprived by you know half an hour or an hour every night during the week then the likelihood is that you know if you sleep in as much as you want at the weekends you probably will to some extent pay back that sleep debt but if you're sleeping five hours rather than seven hours then there is actually quite good evidence that even if you sleep as much as you can possibly sleep at the weekends. By the time Monday morning comes back, there will still be some neurological, some cognitive consequences to having slept so little during the course of the the previous week. So in a clinical setting, when we're seeing patients, we typically say, well, look, in order to rule out sleep deprivation, you really need to be sleeping as much as you can for two weeks before we can be sure that actually your sleep debt is repaid.
0: Wow. Wow. That's really, really, you, would, you really wouldn't think two weeks. I would think, you know, I get to the weekend and I'm done for. I'm good.
1: Well, a lot of people when, when I see them in clinics say, well, I don't understand why I'm feeling so tired. Because although when I sleep five or six hours, I, I wake up feeling tired. If I then give myself seven or eight hours the following night, I still wake up feeling as tired. And the old- That is, of course, you haven't paid back your sleep debt, and you really need to be doing that consistently for a two-week period before it's very clear that your sleep debt has been repaid.
0: Are there people that actually can function on 5 hours sleep?
1: I think there are, but they're very few and far between. So I have uh, a couple of patients uh, who seem to be able to sleep four or five hours without any ill effects, and indeed, we understand this to have an underlying genetic basis in that there are many members of their families who also have something similar. But for the vast majority of people, you know, these are incredibly rare, these individuals. For the vast majority of people, it's impossible really to function fully off a regular five hours a night sleep.
0: And what is the optimal amount of sleep per night?
1: Our, our, our sleep requirement is to some extent genetically determined we are we are aware that there are some genes that have been identified that directly influence the duration that we need to sleep. So on a population level it, it appears that on average the optimal amount of sleep is between um seven to eight and a half hours but okay. it comes down to the individual.
0: Okay, and can you oversleep?
1: Uh, That's a very good question. And I'm not sure that we've adequately answered that question. We know that when you look at, for example, the association between sleep duration and mortality, there, there is a clear signal that if you sleep too little, your risk of death goes up but equally if you sleep too long your risk also goes up which is something that is a bit of a surprise. Now it may simply be that actually if you're sleeping a long time then either you're on medications for other conditions that might make you rather more sleepy or that you have a sleep disorder or some other neurological disorder that is increasing your sleep requirement and is actually increasing your mortality. So I guess the question is not whether it's bad to sleep too long but you have to ask yourself if you're requiring 11 or 12 hours a a night in order to feel fully rested then is there something going on with you physically that might be resulting in that requirement?
0: Yeah because I find it fascinating in your book how you speak of sleep apnea and my little brother he's about 10 and growing up I remember sharing rooms with him when we go on family holidays and we're about 10 and he would snore so loudly and wet the bed all the time. And I remember being like to my mum, "Mum, like he, why is he doing this? He's like 10. And then he went to see um, clinicians and they said, he's got sleep apnea, which he's actually had surgery for. Mm. But it, what astounded me was how in your book, how many people actually suffer from sleep apnea? What are the percentages there with sleep apnea?
1: Well, I think the answer to that is it depends which population you're looking in so sleep apnea which is this condition whereby the airway collapses down in the night and obstructs causing recurrent awakenings is very strongly associated with obesity so depending on how uh, obese the population is it has a great influence on, on how uh, frequent it is in the population. Wow. In, the UK, in the UK, it's estimated that somewhere between 2 and 5% of women have obstructive sleep apnea and about 5 to 10% of men. So these are really huge numbers. Now, obviously, in your brother's case, there, are, there was an alternative explanation for his obstructive sleep apnea in that if he had very large tonsils, that might have predisposed his airway to being narrower than it otherwise should be.
0: Mm. wow i mean i find is that do you think that percentages is re, that those ones you just said directly correlated to obesity within men and women well in this population
1: to, to to some extent yes but we know that obstructive sleep apnea is more common in men anyway uh we think that there are some hormonal influences also in terms of muscle so men tend to have a a, a, a thicker, neck, more muscular neck than women, it, it's not the only explanation, but it's certainly a very important factor.
0: And I wanted to ask you, what are the effects of lack of sleep? Because th- that's something that really made me ch- change my sleep pattern completely. I think I was didn't really understand or basically didn't have the right information to know The detrimental effects of sleep. And I think a lot of people don't know, because we actively choose not to sleep when we can go to sleep. And that was something that changed my mindset by knowing the effects by being like, you need to go to bed at 1030. Because actually, this is the one thing, it's like a medicine, you can just give it to yourself, self administer. So what are the effects
1: well, I think the place to start is that really sleep is fundamental for the regulation of every single biological process in our bodies and and so our our, our sleep really defines what we're able to do during the day and without that starting point, it's very difficult to uh, appreciate the importance of sleep but we know we know that sleep is directly uh, influencing a, a, a wide range of aspects of our daytime lives including our our psychological well-being so for example sleep deprivation can result in worsening levels of anxiety and worsening mood it's important for our cognitive function so in terms of our ability to remain vigilant to make uh, decisions to be able to interpret emotional cues so in terms of how we deal in social with social interactions um, we know it's absolutely fundamental to brain health, so that, uh, for example, sleep deprivation can have an important ro- role in the development of migraine, in seizures, but perhaps most importantly now, we're now starting to appreciate that there is an, as- uh, an association between sleep and cognitive decline, you know, conditions like Alzheimer's disease. Within the brain, wow. there are a range of channels. Um, termed the glymphatic system that we think are responsible for removing toxins or metabolites from the brain and during sleep particularly in certain stages of sleep termed deep sleep those channels open up and are responsible for removing some of these products that have built up built up during the day One of those products is a a protein called beta amyloid, which is fundamental to the development of Alzheimer's disease. And so we think that actually um, sleep deprivation and possibly insomnia may have a fundamental role in the development of cognitive decline later on in life. But it's not even just that. We also know that sleep is important in terms of regulation of our immune function, in terms of restoration of function. Um, regulating our appetite and how we metabolize foods, Um, even potentially there is an association between sleep and risk of cancer. So the World Health Organization a few years ago added shift work to to the list of possible carcinogens in that uh, disrupted circadian rhythms, disrupted body clock rhythms have been implicated in the development of cancers like prostate cancer and breast cancer to such an extent that actually some Scandinavian countries have have uh, started up compensation schemes for government shift workers who subsequently develop cancer. So really, it is for important for every single aspect of our well-being.
0: Wow. And I know you were talking just then about the different stages of sleep, and I think that it will go on nicely with the rest of the podcast, but I just like... If you could explain a brief summary of the different stages of sleep and why each one is important.
1: So, when we drift off to sleep, we tend to start off in, in a stage of sleep called non REM sleep. This is really what we perceive of as sleep. When we monitor the brain waves, we can see that the brain waves slow down a little um, and uh, the, the brain becomes a bit more quiescent. And as we Continuing to slow into uh, sleep, then that depth of that non-REM sleep increases to the point where we hit what we term slow-wave sleep or stage 3 sleep. These are the deepest stages of sleep that are responsible for restoration of function and, as I've already said, probably uh, regulation of our brains as well. After about 75 minutes to 90 minutes, we then hit a stage of sleep called REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. Now, rapid eye movement sleep is actually completely different from non-REM sleep in that when we look at the brain uh, using scalp electrodes, we can actually see that the brain waves are very, very fast. And in fact, it looks rather like the brain is awake. But during that stage of sleep, our bodies are essentially completely isolated from our brains. We're completely paralyzed. We can't move at all. And it's during this stage of sleep, REM sleep, that we tend to do most of our dreaming. So those dreams of a narrative structure, a plot evolving in our minds are very closely linked to REM sleep. And and so over the course of the night, we tend to cycle through these different stages four or five times every 90 minutes or so before we then finally wake up.
0: And I wanted to talk to you about... So when when I wake up, and this is something I've changed a habit of, is snoozing. So at the is this an end of a cycle when I will snooze my alarm, and then I'll I'll be like five minutes, another five minutes, but I'd wake up feeling absolutely awful after the five minutes, instead of when I'd actually just get up and get on with my day. Is that something to do about where you are in your cycle of sleep, or is that because of maybe you're entering another sleep cycle?
1: Well, what should happen towards the latter stage of the night, so just before you wake up, uh, is you should be maintaining most of your time in either REM sleep, in dreaming sleep, or in light non-REM sleep. Whereas if you're very sleep deprived and your alarm goes off and then you go back to sleep again, it may be because you're so sleep deprived that you're going back into very deep sleep, stage three sleep. And when people wake up from stage three sleep, that's when they feel awful. It's what we term sleep inertia or when it's very bad, sleep drunkenness. So that kind of very groggy feeling where you feel a bit confused, you feel terribly lethargic. So does that relate to when you were sleeping five hours a night that you were pressing the sleep button all the time?
0: Completely. And I also think, I mean, I know this is something you talk about a lot um, about if I changed my sleeping pattern in terms of I, if I slept two hours later and then woke up two hours l- earlier, that I'd also feel so awful when I'd wake up like that.
1: Yeah. So, so, so I think that reflects the fact that you're probably very sleep deprived and also potentially going into deep, n- n- a stage three sleep in uh, at the time that you would want to wake up.
0: Yeah. Totally. I mean, how do people deal with that when people who are traveling a lot, how how do people deal with that in terms of jet lag?
1: Well, I think that's very difficult. And if I had an answer for that, um, then uh, I'd be working in the pharmaceutical industry. (laughs) Um, I I guess that the key thing is to when you are traveling is first of all to not to try and skimp on sleep. But the other thing to do is to try and undertake certain measures to shift your body clock as quickly as possible and we know that there are a range of factors that are very important in regulating your internal body clock including things like bright light and a hormone called melatonin but also a range of other behaviors like exercise and eating for example so i In terms of what you can easily manipulate, probably light, your environmental light is the most important of those factors. And so if you're trying to shift your body clock forward, then trying to expose yourself to as much bright light as possible early in the morning is the right thing to do if you're trying to shift your body clock back are you trying to delay your body clock then exposing yourself to bright light ideally outdoors in bright sunshine um, in the evening is probably the best thing that you can do okay very difficult for your brain to compensate for profound sleep deprivation
0: is that detrimental in the long run for someone who travels a lot
1: Well, I I think once again, it comes down to the individual. For some people, um, they find it very difficult to sleep at any time whenever they want, regardless of what their body clock is telling them. But if you're one of these individuals who perhaps doesn't have really good quality sleep or finds it difficult to sleep, you perhaps have a touch of insomnia, then when you're trying to sleep against your own body clock, then that can be very difficult. And so it can result in significant insomnia and sleep deprivation. Uh, and if you're one of those individuals, and obviously there are more potential long-term consequences of that constant shifting pattern because essentially you're going to end up being chronically sleep-deprived.
0: Okay. Wow. So I'm going to go into our next myth. Um, and I want to start with a quote that I've taken that you've... It's not a quote from you, but from... Um, some theorists that you said Hobson and Fritton, and they mention in your book, the nocturnal brain. And they say our dreams represent an amalgam of our experiences, our own cumulative model of the world rehearsed in a million different ways, all in the pursuit of understanding our own personal world and determining our individual consciousness. And I say this quote because I feel like a lot of people like to associate their dreams with the future or this is going to happen. And how much do you believe that our dreams are related to our thoughts?
1: Well, well, I think it's quite clear that the nature of our dreams, the content of our dreams is influenced by our psychological state during the day, but also our experiences of the previous day. I, I think where popular views and science diverge a little bit is that the the content of dreams can be directly interpreted to give great insights into somebody's psyche or other aspects of their, their mental health or or, or psychological state. Um, I, I, I'm, not a, a, I, I'm not a believer that one can directly interpret dreams, but that's something different from saying that your daytime experiences and your level of stress or anxiety or emotional state do not influence the content of your dreams i'm a firm believer in that what i think is that dreams very much uh, determine an integration of your daytime experiences perhaps most importantly over the course of the previous day or two but also an amalgam as your quote said of of your lifetime of experiences Uh, and that's what influences your your dream content
0: and I think um, there's mention in your book as well about sometimes when you're dreaming, is that taking something to your memory bank?
1: Yeah. So so one of the theories about why we dream is that um, during dreaming and indeed other stages of sleep, there's a constant rewiring of our brains. So if you look at the, the, the Friston model, the Hobbes and Friston model, which you mm-hmm. referred to earlier, then what they argue is that dreaming is about remodeling our understanding of the world so that we our brains are primarily functioning as prediction machines because we can't take in everything around us and process them so quickly as to ensure that we can live a normal life so in order to do that we have to make predictions about the world and if we make predictions about the world then then we have to have a model of the world as we see it and so they argue that the process of dreaming is about tweaking our model of the world you know altering it in subtle ways refining it so that our brains can better function as prediction machines Uh, there is some overlap between that model and the model regarding memory So that actually what's happening during the different stages of sleep is that connections are being formed and pruned over the course of the night that allow us to remember uh, certain aspects of our lives, to consolidate memories. And one of the other theories about dreaming is that actually what's happening during dreaming is that we're actually cleansing our memories of their emotional context. So if we have a memory that's associated with a very strong element of fear or anxiety, then the process of dreaming actually allows us to consolidate those memories, but to try and downplay some of those emotional contexts to those memories. And I think this is where the view view that, for example, people with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, often have recurrent nightmares related to the trauma that they've experienced in their lives, in that essentially what's happening is because the memory that they're reliving in their dreams has got such a strong emotional component to it that they wake up, and that's what the nightmares are. And because that process is interrupted, because that process is never completed, then they never really recover emotionally from that traumatic event.
0: Wow. I mean, it's so interesting that you say that because if I've ever had a scenario where it's got a negative connotation to it and if it if it's something that's happened that day in my memory it's something I'd worry about or be anxious about after one night's sleep I think back to it and I'm like okay it, yeah it's still a bit negative and then in a month's time I'm like oh whatever that thing's fine and is that something to do with taking away the negative connotations when you're asleep
1: yes almost certainly I think
0: yeah wow um I wanted to also discuss in your book you speak of one of your patients called Jackie and I know I briefly said to you on email but I mean you're probably better explaining what happened to her which is crazy but I wanted to ask is that related to dreams is that related to dreaming or
1: yeah well in a in a in a weird sort of way so I I think I said earlier on that REM sleep is the stage of sleep that we most associate with dreams of a narrative structure, what we really consider dreams. But over recent years, we've also understood that actually, even in non-REM sleep, this very different stage of sleep, we do dream to some extent. So we often experience visual imagery or strong emotions. Jackie is a woman who, um, in her uh, youth, Uh, had lots of sleepwalking and then in her 20s and 30s was found to be riding her motorcycle in her sleep. Um, Now in her 60s and 70s she was witnessed by her neighbours driving in the middle of the night without any memory of it and was probably sleep driving. Um, But these conditions uh, which are really part of the spectrum of sleepwalking arise in in very deep sleep. Um, So one has to obviously ask the question well how can people drive how can people ride their motorbike how can they cook or eat or do some really complex things think you know i've seen patients who for example have rewired tv sets in the middle of the night when one is very deep sleep and the explanation that science provides us is really quite remarkable in that we uh, we now know that individuals who do these kinds of things actually are able to exhibit sleep or different stages of sleep in different parts of the brain so that actually um, during these events these sleepwalking or sleep driving or sleep motorbiking events parts of the brain remain very deep asleep and those parts of the brain uh, involve memory and also decision making or rational thinking but other parts of the brain parts of the brain that responsible for movement or for vision or for emotion can actually be really quite active. They can exhibit waking behaviour. So essentially half of your brain is awake and half of your brain is asleep. And uh, so this is what's happening in people like Jackie or, or, or people who are sleepwalking.
0: Wow. And I also found it interesting at the end, she's, you write that she locked her keys away in a safe and uh, it, allowed, it opened at 6am, but she never went to do it again. And, and you, you were noting that maybe that's a subconscious. Do you think that was something she took with her to her brain when she was asleep?
1: Yes, I'm not sure. I have a a, a very good explanation for it. But she also gives a similar explanation for events that happened when she was on a cruise, whereby she was noted to be wandering through the ship in the middle of the night, sleepwalking, and uh, she then gave her. Um, card key to one of the stewards and I initially thought that what was happening was that the steward was locking her into her room but actually uh, she uh, said that that wasn't the case that she could still get out of her room but that something in her subconscious was telling her that she wouldn't be able to get back in if she did go sleepwalking and so so this really perhaps illustrates the view that in somebody like Jackie who performed some really very complex things mm. in the middle of the night that actually the vast majority of her brain is awake it's just very small parts of her brain you know the part of the brain that's responsible for for rational action for decision making is asleep and that the memory parts of her brain are asleep but actually for the vast majority of these events her brain is largely awake uh, rather than asleep,
0: right. And I feel like this is everyone says this. Is it bad to wake someone up who's sleepwalking? Yeah.
1: So, so I I think that the commonly held view is that it's um, that it's not a good thing to do. There is some evidence that actually, if somebody has a tendency towards violent behaviour in their sleepwalking event Then actually, one does risk uh, provoking a a violent outburst in in these individuals. But for the vast majority of people, waking somebody up is probably not going to result in any significant harm. Uh, The best thing is generally to guide people gently back to bed and reassure them, and then they'll go back to sleep again.
0: Okay, noted. So I'm going to go into the next myth and I think a lot of people have this idea that I'm going to have a nightcap and that will send me into a lovely deep sleep. Mm. What are the effects of alcohol on sleep? Are they good or are they bad?
1: Well you know alcohol is a very good uh, depressant of the central nervous system so it's a good sedative and you know if you're having difficulty getting off to sleep Uh, then actually taking some alcohol, which is likely to relax you and is likely to make you a bit sleepy, may be helpful. But actually the effects on the quality of sleep are really quite marked. So alcohol tends to cause sleep to become less deep. So it reduces the amount of stage three or deep sleep that people get. It fragments sleep, so it breaks it up. It makes it much more likely for your sleep to be very light and broken. And I think that it also gives rise to other problems like, for example, a full bladder in the middle of the night, which is going to have a a bad uh, effect on your sleep. And if you are a snorer, it's likely to make that worse and it may tip you over into obstructive sleep apnea. So so by and large, uh, alcohol is not a very good drug for improving your sleep quality particularly if you're reliant on it in order to get off to sleep. You're probably much better off uh, going and seeing your doctor and having a discussion with them about your insomnia rather than relying on a nightcap to get you off to sleep at night.
0: It's funny because if I have, say, one or two glasses of wine before I go to bed, I have almost a worse night's sleep than I do if I have a little bit more. Is Is there something to do with maybe the sugar content in when you sleep or...?
1: Well, I think it's probably because when you have a, a lot of wine, it's basically driving you closer towards unconsciousness, and so the sedating effects are, the sedating effects are balancing out the the disruption of uh, the quality of your nighttime sleep. I suspect if you were to do that regularly, then actually you would uh, find that you wake up feeling increasingly tired.
0: And I wanted to ask you around the conversation of alcohol and sleep. There's something that I personally struggled with for a while was sleep paralysis but more to the where I knew I was completely asleep I was like completely out and but I could feel my toes and fingers and that was a way of waking myself up but I found I had sleep paralysis more when I was taking naps or I'd been sleep deprived the night before are they related
1: so are they related to alcohol or are they related to to um things
0: do you think that I my sleep paralysis was brought on by maybe drinking and not having sufficient night sleeps the night before, or as well, or taking naps and creating a different sleeping pattern for myself?
1: Well, I think certainly the latter we know to be true. So, uh, sleep paralysis is when the normal paralysis of REM sleep that is really part and parcel of REM sleep persists beyond when we wake up so essentially there's an overspill of certain aspects of REM sleep into to wakefulness so we know that there are a number of things that can make this more likely to occur Uh, one uh, important factor is disruption of normal sleep patterns because if you spend more time in REM particularly during your daytime naps as a result of being deprived of REM sleep overnight, then that's more likely for sleep paralysis to occur. And it may be that actually by drinking and a combination of drinking and sleep deprivation, you are very what we term REM restricted. You had insufficient REM sleep overnight, which was making it much more likely that you were going to wake up from REM sleep during one of your daytime naps. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, that completely makes sense. But then what does that say for, say, alcoholics who drink regularly what happens to their stages of sleep do they are they still able to get it
1: well they will still get some sleep but the quality of their sleep will be generally much poorer so their sleep will be fragmented Um, the combination of the drug itself but also the weight gain that is often associated with uh, significant alcohol consumption is is going to make it much more likely that they develop obstructive sleep apnea um, and also you know, people who consume very large amounts of alcohol on a regular basis may have some mood disturbance that's associated with that alcohol intake, which is also going to affect sleep quality. So alcohol use all round is not great for sleep.
0: Okay, I get you, I get you. And then um, I wanted to talk about napping as well. So I know a lot of my friends, especially when I was at uni and studying, I would take naps because I was like well I've missed out on some sleep the night before so I'll take a nap but a lot of the time I'd wake up feeling really groggy. Are naps effective and if so how is the best way to implement one?
1: So so naps are, are, are firstly very effective in terms of dealing with sleepiness. Um, there are a couple of important things to, to know about napping. First of all if you are going to nap, then the timing of those naps is really quite important. So what you don't want to do is you don't want to wake up from stage three deep sleep because that will give rise to the sleep inertia or the sleep drunkenness that we discussed earlier on. Um, mm-hmm. so, so either you want to be napping for a maximum of about 20 to 25 minutes because it typically takes about 30 minutes to get into very deep sleep. Or you want to wake up naturally from your nap um, when you have gone through that first period of very deep sleep and you're coming out, perhaps going into REM or into lighter sleep again. So if you set your alarm for an hour after you've gone to bed, then the likelihood is that you're you're much more likely to wake from stage three sleep. The other important consideration is that if you spend time during the day in stage three sleep then that's likely to have a negative impact on your sleep the following night because it takes some pressure off the brain to get to sleep and so you're likely to have more difficulty dropping off to sleep at an appropriate time or getting as much stage three sleep overnight as you would have done without that stage three sleep during the day so If that's a regular pattern for you, for example, you know, if you're living in the south of Spain and you're having a siesta every night, then what tends to happen is, of course, you sleep slightly less during the night, but you make up for it by your siesta. If you're doing it as a result of having too many beers whilst you're a student at university, um, that's probably not a good thing to get into a regular habit of. And if you are going to have a nap, make sure it's a relatively short one.
0: Okay, Also noted. And I just wanted to also touch on sleeping pills and the effect of them because I think I've had I've had a Valium once when I had um, a really bad back and stuff, and I woke up feeling absolutely terrible. But I feel like um, what what actual effect does a sleeping pill have on the body?
1: Well, I, I think the first thing to say is they probably shouldn't be called sleeping pills. They should be called sedatives because they don't actually simulate sleep. In fact, when we give people sleeping tablets, what we often see is that yes, they do sleep a little bit more. Yes, it takes them a little bit less time to get off to sleep, by and large. But actually, when one looks at what we term sleep architecture, so how that sleep is made up, people tend to exhibit more light and intermediate sleep rather than the deep sleep, which is what we actually need. And some of the other tablets that are often given for sleep that are not strictly uh, speaking sedatives, they can sometimes reduce the amount of REM sleep that you're getting. So these are not a good way of naturally mimicking good quality sleep, but they have a, a number of other consequences. So, People will often habituate, and what I mean by that is that they'll get used to that drug and will require ever-increasing doses in order to achieve the same effect. And people can often develop a a psychological dependency or even a physical dependency to these drugs, whereby without the drugs they cannot sleep at all. And uh, perhaps most worryingly is that there is increasing scientific literature about the association between these drugs and cognitive decline, so conditions like Alzheimer's disease. It seems that some of these drugs seem to have an important impact on brain chemistry that predisposes people to developing memory complaints later on in life. I don't think we fully understand that, um, in that, there are other reasons why people requiring sleeping tablets may be at increased risk of conditions like Alzheimer's disease, but certainly it's a cause for some concern And if you're requiring help with your sleep on a regular basis, um, you're probably better off trying to look at some of the non-drug based techniques to try and improve sleep rather than relying on sleeping tablets.
0: Right. Okay. And then I wanted to go into a final myth before I go into the few questions you mentioned earlier about sleep being something to do with genetics Mm. and I find that interesting because my dad especially sleeps very poorly but I sleep really well in what sense does genetics have a play in how you sleep is it environmental maybe in the sense that when I was younger I was taught a sleeping pattern so that is how I go ahead or is it something to do with how you how you're made up
1: I, I think it's all those things. So sleep is really a, a, a confluence of biological factors, so genetics, and whether or not we have any underlying sleep disorders or medical conditions. But it's also a, a function of psychological factors, of behavioural factors, which I think is what you're referring to, this kind of you know, uh, acquiring good sleep habits, and also a function of environment. So Yes, genetics has a very important role in whether or not, for example, you have a tendency towards insomnia. And we know that there are some genes that have been identified for insomnia. It's important in terms of defining what your sleep requirement is. It's important in terms of defining whether or not you're likely to have a sleep disorder. So, you know, if you carry the genes that are likely to cause you to have a slightly narrower airway or carry the genes that are likely to cause you to gain weight, and that's going to increase your risk of obstructive sleep apnea. There are other genes that have been identified that influence your risk of restless leg syndrome, but it's not purely down to genetics, and it's really down to all of these factors. And, and, and when we think of genetics, we tend to think of I don't know if you did biology at, uh, at school, M- Mendelian. I did, but not
0: very well. Yeah, so
1: you probably remember Mendel and his peas. Yes. And, and and Mendelian genes. So, So, you know, whereby if you have the gene, you have a particular trait. Actually, this is probably a combination of genetic factors that you inherit from your mother and your father that come together to give rise to certain characteristics. And that's probably how it works in many of the, uh, aspects of, of of sleep.
0: I listened to a podcast um, recently where you were speaking and you talk of sleep hygiene. So I wanted to know your top tips for sleep hygiene and how to get the best quality sleep.
1: Yeah, uh, uh, sleep hygiene is a horrible term. Um, it kind of suggests that somehow some people sleep cleanly and other people sleep in a sort of dirty disgusting fashion um all all that sleep hygiene means is really the behavior surrounding sleep so uh, most of these things are largely common sense and and it's important to stress that if you're a good sleeper then you don't necessarily need to worry about sleep hygiene. It's only when you're having difficulties getting off to sleep or your sleep is unrefreshing or there's some other problem with your sleep that you need to worry about it. So things like, for example, making sure that your bedroom is an environment that you associate with sleep rather than other things like watching Netflix or working. Um, You know, if you have got problems getting off to sleep, then that's really important. But if you're one of these individuals who can watch Netflix until midnight and then close your laptop and drift off to sleep within two or three minutes, then you don't necessarily need to worry about it. As I've already said, light is a really important factor in regulating your circadian rhythm and, and regulating your sleep. So, Bright. We know that bright light late in the evening is very good at suppressing a hormone in your brain called melatonin. And melatonin is one of the main chemical signals that allows you to drift off to sleep. So if you're exposing yourself to very bright light and you're suppressing your melatonin, that may make it more difficult for you to drift off to sleep when you want to. It may also lessen the quality of your sleep. We've talked about avoiding alcohol. Caffeine is obviously really important for some people, um, in that caffeine hangs around a lot longer than we think it does. And even if you're drinking coffee until midday, if you drink enough coffee before midday, then there will still be some caffeine circulating in your system and may influence your sleep. Your your response to caffeine is another one of these things that is under genetic control, in that there are some individuals who carry a particular... um, Variant in their genetic makeup that means that actually coffee or caffeine has no impact at all on your sleep.
0: I so, have a friend like that.
1: Yeah, so I, I'm always very envious of these people who can drink a double espresso after dinner and then go to sleep without any difficulties. But that is often genetically predetermined as well. So it's about understanding what aspects of your daytime or evening behavior influence your sleep and trying to rectify those if those are not things that apply to you then you don't necessarily need to worry about them
0: and do you think it's important to try and stick to a sleeping routine every night or is it okay if you give or take an hour or two because i do i do really like the fact that you emphasize if you don't have a problem then you don't really need to worry about it because something i really struggled with when first reading about all these sleep sleep problems and stuff i was like oh my gosh i've missed one hour so uh, this means i'm you know being a detriment to myself this is not good um is is there is it okay if i miss an hour or two at at the end of my night or what do you think well
1: i think I, i think that human beings and human brains are remarkably resilient things and you know of course we're adapted to accept some variation and i think it's slightly problematic to be too didactic to to be too rigid about um, sleep or indeed any other human behavior Um, it it risks actually people obsessing about sleep or fetishizing sleep and and uh, increasing their anxiety about sleep because what you don't want is you don't want turned up in a situation whereby you say well i have to be in bed by 10 o'clock i have to be asleep by ten thirty because if on one night you don't achieve that then what you don't want is you don't want your anxiety about your sleep to escalate out of control and and, and this is I, I think of relevance to people who track their sleep in that a lot of people who use sleep trackers they kind of know it, it if the truth be told, whether or not they are sleep deprived, they kind of know whether or not they have insomnia and they don't need a sleep tracker to tell them that they're not sleeping enough or that they have insomnia. For people who have insomnia and have a bit of anxiety about their sleep anyway, then what these sleep trackers do is they tend to make people obsess even more about their sleep and can actually worsen insomnia. So so it's about having a healthy view of sleep understanding that it's important for you understanding that it's important for you know pretty much every aspect of your health but at the same time trying to maintain that balance there and not thinking that if you miss an hour or two if you can go to bed late if you have an all-nighter on one night every so often that this is a catastrophic event it's not
0: totally and that this is one question that i really wanted to fit somewhere but blue light glasses do they work yeah,
1: I, I, I think that the impact of blue light on sleep remains somewhat controversial in that we do know very clearly that blue light is a really important factor in regulating your melatonin. But there remains some disagreement about the impact of blue light on your sleep, because obviously... Just because it affects your brain chemistry does not necessarily mean it has a massive impact on, you, on your sleep. If you use glasses that filter out blue light, and if you are particularly sensitive to the effect of blue light on your circadian rhythm, and we think that this may be what underlies um, something called delayed sleep phase syndrome, where people are set to a rhythm whereby they can only get off to sleep at 4 a.m. and then wake up in the mid-afternoon for example, then actually filtering out blue light may have uh, an important impact on the circadian rhythm. But once again, it comes down to um, the individual and trying to work out whether or not that has any significant impact. What we do know is that many of these filters that gadgets like iPads or mobile phones have, this sort of night shift mode, actually has relatively little impact on your melatonin. And if you're going to use these gadgets and you're worried about light, then actually what you should be doing is is, uh, putting the contrast levels on your devices right down in order to minimise the impact of these devices on your sleep. But it's also important to recognise that it's not just the light uh, of these devices that has an impact on your sleep. It's also the mental stimulation of surfing through Twitter or um, Instagram in the middle of the night. That's quite a mentally alerting phenomenon and that in itself may be having a a, a negative consequence on your sleep
0: right wow i find it all so fascinating well i think that's all we've got time for really but i honestly could talk to you for hours i feel like i'd love to pick your brain for a day but um thank you so 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 much for doing this um and speaking to me today
1: my pleasure thanks for having me
0: i'm i really hope that people can take away from this as much as i do when i listen to read your book listen to podcasts that you've been on so thank you so much if you'd like to get in touch about anything to do with the podcast or just to say hey our email address and when i say our i definitely mean just me is what they don't tell you about pod at gmail.com very nice and long for you to write down